everyone, and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, what a joy to be with you today, and what I want to do in our time together today is kind of continue in a direction that we have been the last few months. This might be our last time in this series. I don't know yet. We'll see. Um, But we have been in a series that I have uh, titled Vital Questions. And uh, every time I think I've come to the last question, I'll find another one, and and uh, and it just kind of blesses me, and I turn around and want to share those thoughts with you. And today, I want to continue in that thought. Now, you remember that this series of vital questions focuses on those questions that kind of emerge in our mind and life through the course of, of history. We, we have these questions, things happen in our life and, and we begin to ask questions. It, it, can God forgive me? Now, I, I know he can forgive everybody else. That's not the question, but can he forgive me? There are things you've not been able to forgive yourself for. So can God forgive me? We answered that question. We looked at another one um, when we asked the question, why is it that people who don't love God seem to have life figured out and they do well and those of us who make the decision that we're going to be Christ followers and really live for God we struggle why is that that doesn't make sense we ask those questions now what we have discovered we have focused our attention in the book of Psalms because in the book of Psalms the psalmist seems to be asking the same questions that we do. And he asks the questions and then offers an answer. So we have been in the book of Psalms looking at these various questions that we ask over the course of our life and finding an answer. And the question that we're going to look at today, I think is a question that many of us, most of us have asked, especially since 2020. I think this is a recent question for us. And here's the question. Why can't we just get along Have you ever asked that question? Why can't we just get along? Why is it that the world has become so hostile and so divided? And I mean, we've come to the place today where we can't even disagree anymore without being disagreeable. I mean, what happened? Why isn't it possible for me to to believe one way and you to believe another way and we still get along? There are some of you that are here today. Your family has been shattered and you have been alienated by family members simply because you don't believe like they do. We come to the place where so many people believe unless you agree with me on everything, I can't even have a relationship with you. If you don't vote for Trump, then you and I can't be friends. If you don't support Biden, then you and I can't be friends. If you don't believe that like I do about the issues that that are, are current in the world today, you and I can't be friends. And that attitude is literally destroying families because we demand that you see things the way we do. And so it just brings the question, doesn't it? Why can't we just get along? Now, I I have to admit, I mean, we've always struggled in relationships, all the way back to the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve in the garden were were placed in the garden, and, and God gifted them with a perfect relationship with him and a perfect relationship with each other. 
But once sin entered the picture, what happens? Their relationship with God was broken, and so was their relationship with each other. So we recognize even the first family struggled in relationships and issues. And, and, and so we understand that it's always been a part of our life. But for me, I don't, I don't know. It just seems like it's getting worse. It, it just seems like it's more hostile today than ever before. But then again, when I read through the book of Psalms, it seems like David asked the same question. And he does that in a wonderful passage of Scripture that's recorded in Psalm 133. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 133. And it's one of the shortest Psalms in all the Bible. Not the shortest. The shortest is, is, is Psalm 117. And in fact, Psalm 134 is shorter than Psalm 133. But nonetheless, Psalm 133 is just a short passage of Scripture that contains only three verses. And it's a poem. And David writes this poem, and I think he writes it from the backdrop of, of the experiencing the, the discord that was so common in the kingdom. And that every now and then when he found the, the, the pocket of families or relationships that got along, he recognized that there was something beautiful about that. And from that perspective, he offers these words and in fact as he offers these words there's an outline that i want to share with you today that's emerged from this psalm and i don't know where the outline came from i i i have heard it ever since i've been in ministry and and every time i come to psalm 133 i'm reminded of it i don't know if it was a sermon that i heard from my dad or something in a commentary but i heard it long long ago and it just kind of stuck with me and and that's what we're going to look at in the text before us because i think there are three things that he focuses on in this passage of scripture that i want to focus on as we walk through this text together first of all he's going to talk to us about the force of unity and then he's going to talk about the course of unity and then finally he's going to talk about the source of unity so you can see why that stuck with me and though I don't know where it came from I think it fits and we're going to recognize those three truths as we unpack Psalm 1 33 together. Now, I, I want you to pray for me because I, I had my sermon all written out and everything good. This morning I got up and made the mistake of looking at it again. And I got up early and looked at it and I thought, man, I don't know why I didn't say this and why this is not a part of that. And I didn't take the time to rewrite it. So I just wrote it in the margins. And so it's all over the place. And so I'm just praying that I can remember how to make my way around my own notes and my time together with you today. But let's look at Psalm 133. It's a fun Psalm. Here is this, this, uh, this poem, if you will, that, that is attributed to David. Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard going down upon the edge of his robe. It is like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. In this wonderful little poem, David says, 
behold, hey, listen, pay attention. How good, how beautiful, how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. I think one of the reasons he said that is because he knew what it was to have brothers dwell together when they are not in unity. He, he knew what it was to experience conflict as all of us do. And he said, in those rare moments when we experience unity, isn't it a wonderful thing? And so in the text before us, he focuses his attention on those three truths. First of all, he talks about the force of unity, how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now, have you ever recognized, he says, how good and pleasant have you ever noticed that there are some things that are good in life but not pleasant, right? Like a root canal, right? A root canal is good, but it's not pleasant, right? I mean, if you've ever had to have a root canal, you know that, that it brings about relief. It's, there's nothing fun about it. It's not pleasant, but it's good. There are some things in life that are good but not pleasant. Physical therapy is one of those things that's good but not pleasant, right? I mean, it's good for us, and we go through that, but we dread going. We even call them physical terrorists sometimes rather than physical therapists. Uh, surgery is good, but it's not always pleasant. There are times when we have to have surgeries, and not anything pleasant about it, but the, the, it's good for us. Going to the gym is good, but it's not always pleasant. I, I go to the gym. I have to make myself go. I don't like it. I've gotten it earlier on in my life. I liked it. I don't like it anymore, but, but I like the way I feel as a result of it. So I, I force myself. So it's good, but it's not pleasant. Now, in the same way, there are some things in life that are pleasant, but not good, right? It is pleasant to say, you know what? I'm just going to stay in bed today. There's, man, that's pleasant. You know, I'm tired. I just don't want to get up. But it's not always good to miss work. It's not always good to, to miss school. It's not always good to hit the snooze button over and over uh, uh, again. Some things are pleasant, but not good. When we sit down and have that Thanksgiving meal together, and Tanya says, what do you want for dessert? We've got pecan pie. We've got potato pie. We've got uh, our pumpkin pie. We've got, uh, we, we've got apple pie and ice cream. And, 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 and it's pleasant to say, well, you know what? I think I'll just have all three. But it's not good. Sometimes we pay for it later in life. So some things are good and not pleasant. Some things are pleasant and not good. But the psalmist says how good and pleasant it is. When brothers dwell together in unity. Man, there's something amazing about that. And, and then he defines that for us. And he helps us understand the power of unity. He said it's like, look at what he says. It's like a precious oil on the head. Coming down upon the beard. Even Aaron's beard going down upon the edge of the robe. He compares unity in this passage of scripture to the precious oil that, um, that, that, that is poured upon the head of Aaron. When, when he was consecrated and, and he was anointed to become the high priest of Israel, 
a part of the process was to take the oil and pour it on his head and and the oil would run down over his face and beard and drip onto his clothing and eventually onto his feet and eventually onto the ground the oil in this picture is a, a, a picture for us of an outward visible expression of an inward commitment or consecration to God so what David is saying in the text before us is that unity for us is what the oil was to Aaron unity is an outward expression of a visible or visible expression of our consecration to God it, it reminds us of the words of Jesus who said by this will all men know that you are my disciples how do you know that you're his disciples because you have such an understanding of the word of God because you know the scriptures because you go to church because you've been baptized no none of those things what did Jesus say this is how the world's gonna know that you're my disciples that you love one another in a world that doesn't know how to love one another my children will love each other and the fact that they love each other with all of the differences that exist in their life will enable the rest of the world to say how do you do that I've come to the place where I can't accept anybody that doesn't believe like I do and yet you guys love each other what he's ultimately saying is this we can't really convince the world to serve a God of love if we don't love each other and so the unity that you and I crave may never be found in the world but it should always be present in the hearts and lives of those that are Christ followers because he calls us and enables us to put aside petty differences and sinful pride and jealousy to love each other in fact he uses another analogy as well and and that is the analogy of the dew dew of course referring to those tiny drops of rain that are formed on plants on the top of Mount Hermon the one of the tallest mountains in Israel in the early morning the dew happens as a result of condensation when the cooler air of the night comes in contact with the warmer surfaces of the leaves of plants the dew occurs and and it becomes vital to plant life there are some places that dew provides more moisture for plants than even rainfall during the course of the year and as he gives this analogy he is saying in a sense dew is is God's way of watering the grass and every day dew provides a life-giving source to plants and in the same way unity has a way of providing a life-giving refreshment to us and we know that don't we If there's no conflict in our home you're happy to go home at the end of the day you're ready to go but boy if you're fighting at home 
and you and your wife are not getting along, or you and the kids are not getting along, there's conflict in home, don't you come to the end of the day and you just dread going home? Why is it that I don't want to go home? Because there's conflict. But if there is no conflict, there's rest. There's recovery. There's something sweet. And he's ultimately saying, as he offers this analogy, that, that, that unity in the, in the body of Christ is life-giving. It is a refreshment that is offered. There is power in unity. One soldier by himself is not much, but you put a group of them together and you had an army. One tree standing alone, even if it's a redwood. One redwood tree on the coast of the area of San Francisco can't stand against hurricane winds. But when you put a forest of redwood trees together, all of a sudden... It can withstand hurricane force winds and has for years because scientists have discovered that the roots of those trees grow together. And rather than pushing one tree over, the whole forest becomes powerful. One shingle provides no protection, but put a bunch of them together and you've got a roof. One drop of water is nothing, but put a bunch of drops of water together and it forms a river that can literally wash away cities one link is no good, but put a bunch of them together and you have a chain. One flower is beautiful, but put a bunch together and you've got a bouquet. He's ultimately saying unity is a force that has to be dealt with. In fact, when there is unity, it becomes a powerful resource to communicate the love of God to a world that is broken and falling apart. And the gift that God gives and calls us to as a church is to have a unity even amid our diversity that shows the rest of the world how it's done. Well, not only does he talk about the, the force of unity, he talks about the course of unity, the value of unity. In the text before us, he says, it enables us to dwell together that's a powerful thought, isn't it? How good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. The, 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 the course, the value of unity is that it enables people who are so different to come together. People that have different political opinions, people that have different nationalities, people that come from different places, and, and it allows us to be friends with people that are nothing like us that share nothing in common. I mean, we often say when we come together, one of the unique things about our church is that, that our mission statement is not just something that we aspire to, it really is who we are. And we say to you every week that we believe that God has put us here to, to help people from all generations and backgrounds thrive. God has brought together in this place people of every generation and you know what? Generations are different. And we see the world differently. And we interpret things differently. And, and sometimes it's easy for people of my generation to get frustrated with people in younger generations. And it's easy for people in younger generations to get frustrated with people in older generations. But God's brought us all together. 
I know some churches that only have young people in them and some churches that only have old people in them. But our church has people from every generation and every background. We got people that grew up in the country and people grew up in the city. And you know what I've discovered? They're different. Our ideology, our thought process is different if we grew up in the country and you grew up in the city. And some of you grew up in other countries and and, and, and backgrounds and English is not even your first language. And yet God has brought you here and and he sits you beside a person that that doesn't even know how to speak another language. And and he has brought together such a diverse group of people and he enables us to dwell together in unity. Now I want you to understand one of the reasons that we struggle in the world today is because we fail to understand what unity is. We, We think sometimes unity is the same thing as union. Unity is not the same thing as union. My dad used to say, you can take two cats and tie their tails together and throw them over a clothesline, and you've got unity. I mean, you've got union, but you do not have unity. Well, that's a vivid picture, isn't it? Some of you are still trying to figure out what a clothesline is, I know. But (laughs) you tie their tails together. They're united, but they're not in unity. Man. And the fight that emerges as a result of it. And I want you to understand that that God's not calling us to to be in union, but to be joined together in unity. Unity is inward, where union is an outward expression. Unity means that we don't have to be unanimous. That we don't always have to uh, agree on everything. It doesn't mean that we have to see eye to eye. In fact, we don't have to see eye to eye to walk arm in arm. It means that we can be brothers, but we don't have to be identical twins. It means that we can disagree without being disagreeable. It means that for us within the body of Christ, this should be a place where there's no fear of having different opinions and not having a brother or unbrotherly attitude about that. In fact, I have seen this and witnessed this myself so many times in church. The power of unity. I remember one pastor telling of his experience, and most of us could probably tell of the similar experience. But he told of a time when they, as a church, had decided to build a new building. They were going to build a recreational building. And and he had a particular person in his church that was adamantly against it. And every opportunity they had, he spoke against it. He talked against it. I don't think we need to be spending that kind of money. We need to be investing in missions and around the world. And, 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 and he had a good reason for everything he did. And when it finally came to the point where the church would make a decision and they would vote together on that, he stood up and he once again offered his opinion. We shouldn't do this. This is not what I believe God wants us to do. After he had said his piece, the church voted And the vote was to build the building. He was the only person that voted against it. But he was the first person to pledge money toward it. He was the first person to step forward and say, you know what? I I, I didn't think this is what God wants us to do. But if the rest of the church body believes that this is where God wants to go, I'm going to. I'm not going to be disagreeable. I don't agree, but I don't have to agree with you about everything for us to walk arm in arm as we move forward in the kingdom work. 
Now, I understand, and we must understand that there are some issues, of course, that can't be compromised. There are matters of conviction that we have, and I'm going to tell you something. If it's a matter of conviction, you don't bend. If it's a matter of whether or not it's biblical, if there's a biblical mandate, we do not compromise. We do not bend, but at the same time, we don't have to be mean-spirited about it. I'm reminded of, of, of the church where Paul was, was writing and they were struggling. They had been in a pagan environment and one of the things they struggled with was that some of the Christians who had, or believers who had, who had accepted Christ came from this pagan background where meat was offered to idols and meat was put out and, and offered to idols. And, and the very next day, that same meat that was offered to an idol, because the idol didn't eat it, it just sat there, that meat was back in a meat market and it was offered at a reduced rate. And many of the Christians, because they were struggling, they didn't have any resources, they were poor, they found that to be a deal. I could afford that meat that had been off the idols. But some of those who came from a pagan background said, you can't do that. Do you understand that, that when you do, you're, you're, and, it, and it was a matter of conviction. And, and you remember what Paul said? It's not a matter of right or wrong, if, but if it's a matter of conviction for that person, then don't do it. Unity is of greater value than that. Now, what that means is, we have to know the difference between principle and preference. We have to know that there are some things that are matters of principle and not a matter of, of preference, but we have to come to the place where we yield and find that the force of unity is a power that we can grab that impacts the world. The course of unity is a value that we begin to demonstrate. But then finally, he says there's the source of unity. Now, the source of unity is seen also in that analogy that we find because there's a, uh, in, in, in Hebrew, there's a play on words in this poem, and we see this three different times. He says, it's like the precious oil on the head coming down on the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down on the edge of the robe, and so there is a progression of, of the oil starting here and coming down and coming down. And he uses the same analogy when he says, it's like the dew on Mount Hermon, which is a tall, tall mountain, and it comes down to Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, much, much lower elevation. The idea is that God's the one that gives it. It starts with God. He originates. It comes from here, and it comes down to us. And so unity is something, when we talk about the source of unity, it's something that, that comes from God. How pleasant it is, he says, that, that, that we can dwell together in unity as brothers. The thing that enables us to experience unity is our connection as brothers. I mean, go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. When God created Adam and placed him in the garden, you know what he said? You need relationship. It's not good for man to be alone. And so he created for him Eve, and he placed him in the garden. This time he said, it's very good. Every time God created something, he said, it's good. And then when he created Adam and Eve and put them together in the garden, he said, this is very good. Now man has a relationship with, with his wife, and, 
they have a relationship with God. He created us to have relationship. But when sin entered the picture, what happens? Well, it destroyed the relationship that we have with God and it, it destroyed the relationship they had with each other. Shortly after Adam and Eve get kicked out of the Garden of Eden, I'm sure that it probably happened. First night, Adam comes home late. Eve waits till he goes to sleep and counts his ribs. Take you a minute. We'll see if there was another woman. All of a sudden, I don't trust you. What happens? Sin begins to destroy the relationship we have with others. But unity is based on a common commitment. Here's how I can illustrate it to you. We saw it. If you've been to the Christmas production, you've seen it. If not, you pay attention this afternoon. Kara leads our orchestra. And I really watched her because she stands here in the middle and, and, and when she raises her arms, everybody in the orchestra responds. Just watch them. When she kind of, she has, and it's lit. The first thing, she's kind of got the little, you know, baton and it lights up so they can see. And she raises her and everybody, boy, everybody's at attention, they respond. And when she comes down, Boom, they start. And as she's leading, I'm watching her. There comes a point where she points to that person. She builds up and, okay, it's your, and then they respond. And then she's over here. And then she's over here. And as she leads the orchestra, everybody responds. And it's amazing to watch. But I want to ask you a question. What do you think would happen if people in the orchestra said, you know what? I'm tired of her. And um, in fact... I don't really like this song. And the song she wants us to play first, I don't like it. So I'm not going to play that song. I want to play what I want to play. And I'm going to play my own song. Everybody else, you can play that song if you want to, but I'm going to play what I want to play. And so let's just suppose everybody in the orchestra says, you know what, I'm just going to pick the song I want to play. And I, I'm not going to pay any attention to what Kara wants. I, it's not important what she wants anyway. I'm big enough to make my own decision. I've been playing this instrument a long time. And uh, I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I'm going to play whatever song I want to play. And in fact, I don't want to start when she says I have to start. Why should I start when she does? I mean, who is she Tell me when to start? No, I'm going to start when I want to start. So everybody plays whatever they want to play. They're going to start whenever they want to start. And I'm going to stop whenever I want to stop. I don't want to stop when you tell me to stop. I want to keep going. I'm going to stop when I want to. What's going to happen? It's chaos, right? You know what makes it work? When everybody in the orchestra yields to the authority of the conductor. And when they say, it's not what I want, but what you say, and when you say, and how you say, that unity comes. Let me tell you how we get along. It's when we yield to the person of God's Holy Spirit in our life. And it's no longer about me. And it's no longer about what I want. It's no longer about what I think. It's no longer about what I, my opinion doesn't matter anymore. I yield my life to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I yield to him, he enables me 
to experience unity. And, and we become to the world this amazing song. And they look at us and say, how can such diverse people who can't agree on anything come together and proclaim with such clarity a truth of God's love? It is a tribute to the conductor. And it boils down to us yielding our life to him and expressing his mind and will, as Paul said in Philippians, that we need to have this mind, we need to have this attitude in us that was also in Christ Jesus, who left the glory and splendor of heaven and put on human flesh to serve us. And suddenly said, it's not about me, it's about you. And when we live our life that way, we will know what it is to get along. <laughs> and suddenly, the power of unity becomes something of rest. The last thing he says in the psalm, he refers to eternity. Because in the last phrase, he says, there the Lord commanded the blessing life forever. He talks about heaven. You, you know, maybe one of the things that's amazing about heaven is we're there from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And the Bible says in heaven there is rest. You know why? Because there's no conflict. We're all together in one accord under the direction of the conductor Jesus as we yield our life to him. Why can't we get along? Well, we can if we know him and if we're committed to him. And those of us who know him can demonstrate to the rest of the world what it looks like to be different and yet at the same time unified in Christ. And we can become the church that God's called us to be when he says, this is the way the world's gonna know not because of what you teach, not because of what you preach, not because of what you sing. They're gonna know because of the way you love. And that's what God's called us to do. And I pray that each one of us can step up and accept that challenge as we yield to the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today, the opportunity to respond to its truth. We've all asked that question over the last few years. Why can't we just get along? And today we've discovered that we can. Those of us that know you, because you, you're the source. You're the one that gives us the power, the ability to do that. And so I pray, Father, that today we would take these truths and make application of them to our lives so that we can walk in the unity that you've called us to. And we can be the example to the world of what it looks like to be Christ followers, to follow a God that loves us unconditionally and empowers us to love each other the same way. Father, there are some in this room today that there are some issues that need to be <clears throat> fixed before they can walk in this, and it really boils down to them being obedient to you and saying yes. 
There may be some things that they need to let go of, some forgiveness that they need to offer, some changes that need to be made. So lead us to say yes to that in the power of your Holy Spirit. For any who have never accepted you as Savior, may this be the day that they recognize their need to receive you and the love you offer. And that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.